Good, well, it's, uh, it's my pleasure and privilege to be able to share from the Word of God with you this morning. And um, I trust that you will be enriched and blessed by the Word as I do my best with God's help to bring it to you. I don't know if you've been following the election much this week. Um, I'm not going to make any political statements. I don't think it's right to make political statements in church. But what I have noticed, um, I haven't followed the election a lot. I've been too busy doing other things. But what I have noticed is just how, how ungracious and how divided and how um, bitter this, this whole election campaign has been. You only have to read some of the comments on social media and uh, on articles and just to see the kind of hatred that people have one for another, the kind of injudicious, unwise, ungracious messages that people send to each other. And this, this verse from Proverbs came to mind. You may know it. It says this, Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. I think that, that really sums up a lot of the discourse that's been going on in the country leading up to this election. And, of course, only a fool would believe that somehow um, this result will actually resolve those deep-rooted divisions in our society, in our nation. But we may well ask, when we see such division amongst people, perhaps well-meaning people, respectable people, in, in many aspects of their lives, we have to ask the question, is, is reconciliation ever possible? Will it be possible to bring this, this nation back together in some kind of unified state? And obviously, we look around the world. Everywhere we look, we see conflict of various kinds. On a national level, on an international level, in our communities, on our streets, the world is bitterly divided. The world is in conflict. And there is very little semblance of peace. And I think actually it's, it's incredibly difficult to bring people back from the brink and to reconcile such divided parties. One of our best loved carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we've just sung it. I'm sorry, my, my guitar string broke as I was playing. I could, it's okay, you remedied it, so that's why I was kind of just miming along. What a great carol. That, that carol is like a Dundee cake of a carol. Are you, I don't know if at Christmas if you like a Dundee cake. It's... It's a, for those of you who don't know, it's a rich fruit cake, just full of good dried fruit, good ingredients. You've got, you know, nuts and raisins and all kinds of, I don't know what else, prunes, I don't know what's in it, but it's, it's jolly good. So this carol is like, it's like a, a Dundee cake of a carol that you get from, I don't know, Fortnum and Mason's, not a place I usually shop. I'm, I'm usually to be found on Lewis Road, Aldi. And you can get a nice Dundee cake there as well, but not as nice as Fortnum and Mason's, full of rich ingredients, probably, I'm told anyway. But of the finest ingredients, every part of that cake is rich. Every part of that cake is wholesome. It's a, you know, it's a delight, a gastronomic delight, that cake. My, my great aunt, who's dead now, used to send us one every Christmas. It wasn't very big, it was about this big, and we used to have a little slice. And this carol, this carol is like that. It's rich in theology, rich in the word of God, rich in scriptural references. My original plan was to go through this carol and just pick it apart and draw out some of those references, but that would take far too long. So I've, I've chosen the one which is most on my heart this morning, which I, I hope will be helpful for us. That line, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. As usual, Mark's come up here and he's, you know, he's stolen my thunder. He's done a, done a great children's talk, which is probably more beneficial than some sermons in some churches. Actually, more full of truth. We're going to talk about reconciliation this morning. And I think we need to hear this in such a divided world where there is so little hope and so much division and so much ungraciousness. We can talk this morning about grace and talk this morning about reconciliation talk about peace let's bring up um, a portion of scripture on which this carol is well one of the, the portions of scripture which this carol draws upon so this is Luke 2 verses 8 to 14 and this is read in churches up and down the land every Christmas it's probably read in St Paul's Cathedral I don't know but let's read it but the angel said to them this is obviously the shepherds in Bethlehem outside Bethlehem the angel said to them do not be afraid 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appear with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Sounds, sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Peace on earth, glory to God and peace to men on whom his favour rests. But you may well ask the question, the following questions. These are the questions I jotted down as I, I looked at these verses. I thought, what might a non-believer who might happen to be in a church on a Sunday on, before Christmas at a carol service and hear nine lessons and carols, hear this read to them, what, what might they make of these verses? How are they to understand these verses? This message of the angels. And these are the kind of questions that they might, may ask, they might ask. Why is the birth of Jesus, this baby 2,000 years ago, such good news for people? The angel said that he was a saviour. In what way was Jesus a saviour? Why do we even need a saviour? In what way is peace brought to men? In what way does God's favour rest upon men? So it's up on the screen there. These are the kind of questions. In what way is he, is he the saviour? In what way is peace brought to men? In what way does God's favour rest on them? These are the kind of questions that that might arise in the minds of somebody that heard these verses about the angels. And the hymn writer, the writer of this carol, connects them with this idea of being reconciled to God. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And I've chosen this morning, this is not going to be our main text, I've chosen 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is a great piece of scripture which helps us understand this idea of reconciliation to God. For some of us, it's very familiar. But I tell you, my dear friends, you'll never hear anything more exalted than this. Not because I'm a great speaker, but because these truths are magnificent and encouraging and inspiring and full of hope. So let's turn together to the verses that Christopher read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we could spend a long time unpacking this chapter, but we'll focus today on verses 17 of chapter 5 to chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I'll do my best to bring out a few points which hopefully will be helpful. As Mark so rightly pointed out, when when reconciliation takes place, it implies that there has been a conflict of some kind. There has been a division caused by misunderstanding or caused by wrongdoing, a breakdown in communication, a breakdown in trust, and there are two parties that need to be reconciled in every case when reconciliation is offered. The first question we might ask is, who are the two parties that need to be reconciled in this case? Because Paul talks about reconciliation, but who are these two parties? Well, I've mentioned it already, haven't I? So turn with me to this chapter. So look at verse 19. We find out, first of all, the first party involved here is God. It says here, God was reconciling the world to himself. So in that verse, we have the two parties here who are in conflict one with another. We have God on one hand. And we have the world, meaning people of the world, not the planet itself. And these two are in conflict with each other, and they need to be reconciled. And if you look look at verse 18, Paul makes it even more personal. He says this, All this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself. So Paul includes himself and his readers in this. It's not just the world in a generic sense. He's talking about us and me having been reconciled to God. Some people labor under the delusion that that everything is all right in the world. There is a God and God just loves everybody and everything's okay. We could just carry on and God doesn't really mind too much. But the Bible makes it clear that reconciliation needs to take place between God and his world, his creation, people of that world, including us. Some people 
erroneously teach, falsely teach that all ways lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe, that, that God is just happy with everybody. But if that's the case, why on earth does Paul talk about reconciliation? Reconciliation implies a conflict, a division, alienation, two parties which need to be brought back together. So let's just quash that, that myth right, right away that somehow everybody's automatically all right with God. Because if that's the case, why on earth is Paul talking about reconciliation? Now, I want to make a point about God being the innocent party in this division. I don't know if you've ever tried to, to counsel a couple who have had a row, um, a conflict, a married couple, or perhaps not a married couple, but two people who are together and they've had a, a terrible row. They've been really arguing, hammer and tongs with each other. And their relationship has, bro- has broken down to such an extent they need help, they need counsel. It can be incredibly difficult in such a situation to work out who is, who is at fault in the situation. Who has caused this? Who is the one that has spoken unwisely? Who is the one that has acted wrongly? And very often, because we're all sinners, in a married, in a married situation, in a, in a kind of marriage conflict, you'll find that, you know, it takes two to tango. I can't think of a better expression. There's very rarely one innocent party and one guilty party in, in that kind of row. There are some times, I know, but generally speaking, when two people have a, have a big row and a fallout and a disagreement and a quarrel, you'll find out that both of them are somehow at fault. And it takes a lot of wisdom, more wisdom than I've got, to sit down with, with, with such people like that and to unpack the situation, try to, to work through the issues and to get people to, to reconcile with each other, to be reconciled. And uh, usually it takes one, both people to apologize and admit they're, they're at least partially in the wrong, and to humble themselves and to, to say, I'll meet you halfway, I'll come to some kind of compromise, because, yes, you've, you've wronged me, but I've also wronged you as well. And let me just say as an aside, if you've fallen out with somebody in the church, or even somebody outside the church, you need to put it right, and you need to humble yourself. Even if you've been wronged, you need to take the step of reconciliation, because that honors God, blessed are the peacemakers. We're so stubborn, aren't we? You know, it has been known for Anya and I to have it. You don't mind me saying so, do you? We, we've, we've had had, a, had the odd row over, over 12 years. We've never had a complete breakdown of relationship. That's not going to happen by God's grace. But the, what the point I'm making is there's no such thing as, a, as an innocent party when sinners are involved, generally speaking. But in the case of the world's estrangement from God... We, are, we humans are entirely the guilty party, and God is the innocent party. God has been nothing but gracious and kind to us. God has poured out his blessings, one after another, on us. And if, you, if you're honest with yourself, God has done no harm to you. God has done no wrong to you. We have despised him. We have ignored him. We've lived our lives with no reference to him whatsoever. We've rejected him. We've rejected his message. We've rejected his son. We've broken his laws. We've defiled his commandments. Whether we knew it, whether, whether we didn't know it, or, you know, whether we knew it or not, we've, we've violated his holy covenant and his commands. In the Old Testament, God made many covenants with his people, several covenants. And those covenants were, were like a contract, an agreement, between God and his chosen people, the people of Israel. And God said, I will be your God and I will be faithful and I will bless you if you keep the demands of my covenant. If you do these things, you will be blessed. But the people had an obligation to obey God's laws. And God said, if you do that, everything will be well with you. There's not a single instance of God breaking his covenant or going against his side of the bargain. But time and time again, the people of Israel, just as we would, disobeyed him, broke his commands, worshipped idols. And God brought upon them all kinds of calamities and disasters. And they had only themselves to blame because God had been faithful, they had been unfaithful, like an adulterous woman. That's how the Bible describes them. Like an unfaithful wife to the God who'd blessed them and done so much, who'd delivered them from Egypt, from slavery taken them through the sea, brought them to the promised land, gave them a rich and a good land. They still bowed down and worshipped idols and defiled his laws and disobeyed him. 
verse 19 indicates what the problem is. It says this, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. That gets to the heart of the problem, the alienation we have between us and God is the sin we have committed. Sin is all wrongdoing and rebellion against God, falling short of his standards, falling short of that command to love him with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And there's not a single person in this room or in this world who can say, all of my life, from the moment I was born, I've loved God with all my heart, soul, and strength, and worshipped him and obeyed him, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person, I don't care who you are, I certainly have. Isaiah 59, in the Old Testament context, tells us what the effect of this disobedience is. This is God talking to his people. He says, but your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Dear friends, this is the predicament that we humans, all of us, face. is that we have broken God's commands. We've fallen short of his glory and we are separated from him. We don't see any visible evidence of that. We don't see God. But the the Bible says very clearly we are separated from God. We are not able to relate to him. We are not able to pray to him. People do pray to him, but they're they're not heard because they are not not right with God. They are alienated from him. They are, as as Romans says, we are the enemies of God. You might might be very shocked to hear that. Am I really an enemy of God? I've got no, no problem with God. I've got no quarrel with him. I live my life. I'm a good person. You know, what's the problem? But the Bible says very clearly, we are enemies according to God's standards because we have broken his law. And even one sin, one sin would be enough to defile us and damn us and separate us from God. Just one sin. And I'm sure all of us have committed more than one sin this morning, let alone over a lifetime. So as I said, we we are guilty, all of us, We do not obey God, we do not delight in him, we do not seek him, we do not submit to him, we do not worship him, we do not consult him when we make decisions. We live our lives as though God were completely irrelevant. And the Bible says very clearly that we are, to use a biblical term, unrighteous. We are not holy in God's sight, we are not right before him. And the Bible uses words like being under condemnation. And under judgment, alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Maybe this morning you don't think that you are guilty before God. You think this is the human tendency to be self-righteous and to say, to justify yourself and say, I'm not, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person. But I want to make a very important point this morning about guilt. That guilt is not primarily a feeling. You may not feel guilty let me put this illustration before you to illustrate what guilt really is. Imagine a man um, commits a serious crime. People are hurt. Lives are changed because of his crime. And this man goes on the run from the police. The police are trying to pursue him. They're trying to track him down. This man goes into hiding. Now this this criminal may may feel some, some sense of remorse or guilt about what he has done. He may not, I don't know, but let's assume that he does. And he says, I feel, I feel guilty, I feel a bit bad about robbing that bank and that person that got shot. So what I'll try to do is try to make myself feel better by volunteering at the local food bank, the local homeless shelter. And he does that for a while and he, you know, he shifts boxes and humps stuff around in the, in, the, in the food bank and he feels a bit better and he feels like he doesn't feel so guilty anymore. Question for you, has his guilt been dealt with? Now, he might, might, may feel it has been dealt with. He doesn't feel guilty anymore. But according to the law of the land, that man is still guilty. And just as soon as the law catches up with him, that law will bring its full penalty upon him. And he can make all the excuses he likes and say, well, I, I volunteered at the food bank. I tried to make amends. I tried to deal with my guilt. But the law of the land will be held up before him. The judge will say guilty and put him away for 20 years or whatever. 
trying to deal with your guilt just by making yourself feel better doesn't deal with your problem because guilt is not primarily a feeling. It is a status. It is a a judicial statement that God makes about a sinner. You are guilty in my eyes, just as the law would regard that person as guilty. It doesn't matter if you feel guilty or not. The fact remains that before the law, you are guilty. In the local community magazine, I I read something in the week which made my blood boil. And We need to be gentle, we need to be gracious, but this was written by by a vicar somewhere in Brighton, and I, I don't mean him any harm, but this man wrote um, an article about guilt. And I thought, this is really fantastic, because normally in the community magazine, you read all about carol services and Handel's Messiah and all these kind of things going on in churches. But you very rarely see a, a vicar or a church leader writing about anything, anything about the gospel or about God. And I, I read this, I saw the article, it's like, how to deal with guilt or something like that. I went on this church's website. Um, it's not a church near here, it's somewhere in Brighton, but you don't need to know. Um, stay in this church, don't go there. I went on their website, it had all about bell ringing and organ recitals and information about the church building and the architecture, but it had, had no statement of faith telling you what the church actually believed. That's a very dangerous sign, actually, when you go on, on a church's website and there's no, no indication about what they believe, what they hold firm, what they, they hold, hold as important doctrinally. That's a very good indicator that church is off base and apostate. Not necessarily, but generally speaking. Because churches that are, that are concerned about truth will make it plain for people. We've got it on the wall out there, what we believe, so that nobody's any doubt. This is what we believe. We nail our colours to the mast. Let me read you what this vicar wrote about guilt. Just an extract from it. See if you can pick out what's wrong with this. Many have recently celebrated various feasts, and we are not very much away from Christmas. So far, so good. I believe and find in every feast of every religion a saving light, and in the feast of Christmas, the birth of a redeemer. Gets worse. Humanity needs that belief and hope, and there is someone who takes the guilt away. In every religion, those who believe have that psychological or inner certainty that their guilt is taken away and are thus liberated from their guilt. Happy Christmas. Do you see what that, that, that man is saying there, why it's wrong? For him, the idea of guilt being taken away is it's a feeling, a sense that I'm guilty in some way, just being taken away by whatever works for you. So it doesn't really matter what religion you believe in or whatever your creed is. It doesn't really matter. As long as it takes your, 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 your sense of guilt away, that psychological, gives you that psychological advantage, that inner certainty that makes you feel better, it's placated you. It's just taken away that sense of guilt. But unfortunately, that's the very worst thing that can happen to you. That's the very worst thing for someone to take away your sense of guilt or something to take away your sense of guilt without dealing with that problem that we all have, that forensic judicial statement before God's holy law, I am guilty. What a negligent thing to do, to make people, to say to people, peace when there is no peace. Just try whatever works for you to take away your sense of guilt. That man should have been saying, believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't know how they get these people. Where they, where, you know, I, don't, I don't mean to be harsh, but how, how do these people stand there as, as religious professionals saying these things? The Christian message, the gospel, is not designed just to make people feel better or to make you more moral in your behaviour, or to just take away your sense of unease, because we, we all know what a, a guilty conscience is. Even non-Christians have that. Imagine a man or a person going to a doctor. I've, I've, you know, I, feel, I don't feel very well. The doctor examines his patient, and the doctor soon discerns that this person has a very, very serious illness. And if untreated, that, that illness will certainly lead to an early death. This illness is treatable, the the medication is available, but the doctor, the physician, sees sees no no purpose in spoiling the man's day by telling him about the severity of his illness, the the danger of his condition, the danger of following that path that he's on by continuing untreated. It will certainly kill this man and rob his wife and children of their husband and father. 
That physician is too cowardly or too reluctant to spoil that man's mood by telling him this. So what he does, he he gives him some kind of mild painkillers and things that deal with the symptoms of this illness. And he says, just take these, you'll be okay, you'll feel better. The man takes them, he feels better. Six months down the line, he dies. What kind of physician, what kind of doctor would do that? To not tell his patient to diagnose the problem and to offer him a cure. And that's what it's like when somebody stands in a pulpit, purports to be a Christian, purports to be an authority figure who knows about the word of God and stands there and deceives people and doesn't tell them about their condition. We should pray for these these situations. Dear friends, there are all sorts of ways you can deal with your guilty conscience if you're not a believer. People try them all the time. Why not try a bit of mindfulness? Everywhere you look in this city is mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Why do people do mindfulness? They're trying to get some sense of peace. In a stressful and you know, division-fraught world. Perhaps you could, you could take the morality path by doing good. That's a very common one, isn't it? Get involved in the community. Join the Green Party. Go picking up leaves. Wonderful things to do. Good, well, in some cases anyway. Go and pick up, do something good. Wipe graffiti off walls. Volunteer at the food bank. That's a very good idea. I, I, I encourage you, volunteer at the food bank. They do a fantastic job. Picking up leaves is good as well. The trouble is the leaves grow back and next year you have the same problem. But doing good, being moral, will not take away your guilty status before God. It may ease your conscience, but it will not solve your biggest problem. How about distracting yourself with entertainment? That's another one as well. People, people in this day and age have so much money, so much leisure time, so much disposable income. They just fill their lives with frivolity and entertainment, like big children, just entertaining themselves constantly. One, one party after another, one new toy after another, just to avoid thinking about the guilt that is on our soul. How about trying another religion? So you've got people who dabble in all kinds of religions and these religions all have their, as, as the vicar rightly pointed out, they have their way of dealing with guilt. So you could try a bit of Buddhism or a bit of whatever, Islam, or mix, mix the two in some kind of fusion. Will it deal with your biggest problem? Will it reconcile you to God? Will it deal with your sinful status before God? How about just being really sorry? Going to church, praying and saying to God, I'm really, really sorry for what I've done, trying to make amends, give some money to the church collection, even serving the church. My dear friend, none of these things in themselves, as good as they may be, will take away your guilty status before God. Even praying to him, if you don't come to him in the way that he prescribes, will not take away your guilty status before God. How about another very common alternative, just to forget about it, you know? Just forget about your your sense of guilt. Just forget about it and live your life and do what everybody else does. So having said all that, I want you to remember that the guilt we have before God is not a feeling, but it's a status, a legal status. God declares us unrighteous because we have broken his law. So what hope is there? I've talked about all the things that don't offer hope. What hope is there? Well, let me say this. Look at verse 18. I want to point out to you the mercy of our God. All this is from God, says Paul. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Has it ever occurred to you that God could just, just as easily have left all of humanity to march headlong like a, like a herd of lemmings? Is it a herd of What's the collective noun of lemmings? I don't know. A herd of lemmings marching on that cliff, towards that cliff edge, that precipice. God could have left us all to our own devices for that to happen. We would have all perished, we would have all been judged, and God would have been seen to have been righteous. God had every right to do that, actually. But our God, our God saw our helpless estate, our helpless condition, and God has instigated. Can you put that, put up, uh, who's doing the clicker, Mark? Can you put that? Anyway. God is the instigator of reconciliation, as you rightly pointed out. God is the one who takes the first step. We love because he first loved us. And God has, has 
broken into this world. He's stepped in and he's intervened in order to reconcile people to himself. So I haven't got much to say about this, but it wasn't a case of us reaching out to God. Nobody seeks God. Nobody seeks God. Not in truth. People do seek God, but they don't seek the true and living God. They're in rebellion against him. But God is the one who seeks people. God is the one who saves people. God is the innocent party. He's the one who's been offended. He's the one whose holiness has been violated. And he's the one who can set the terms of peace. And that is exactly what he does. And the next point is this. God is the, he's the, uh, get my words out, he's the, the enabler of reconciliation. Look at verse 19. Let's find out what this reconciliation looks like. It says here that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. How can it be that a holy God does not count men's men, that means men and women, people's sins against them? Does God just overlook sin? Does he just let people off? I've got a Muslim uh, acquaintance. I've, I mentioned him many times. He, he provides me with rich sermon material. I pray for this man's salvation. One day he might be worshipping the Lord Jesus with us here, not as a prophet, but as the son of God. But this, this dear man says to me, you don't need any sacrifice for sins. Look at the Lord's Prayer. He's very, very kind of clever in quoting the bits of scripture that he thinks back up his arguments. He says to me, pray the Lord's Prayer. You know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's all you need to do. You don't need a sacrifice. You don't need a substitute to die for your sins. All you need to do is just say sorry to God and God will forgive you. But the Lord's Prayer, my dear friend, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of a saved person. It's not a prayer that non-believers can pray. We've all been at funerals where people parrot off the Lord's Prayer like some kind of mantra. People who have got no regard for God. And do you think God will hear you if you pray that prayer, if you're not a believer? The clue is in the first line of the, of the, the, the prayer, our Father in heaven. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you haven't been reconciled to God, you cannot pray that prayer and expect to be heard because God is not your Father. This is the prayer of a forgiven person, a person who's been reconciled to God, who can come before him and say, yes, Lord, I'm not, I've sinned, please forgive me, and God will forgive them. But it's not a matter of God just letting people off. What would, what would happen if God were just to overlook sin, to wink at sin, and just, just ignore it as though it didn't matter? Well, let me tell you three things that would, that would, would happen if that were to be the case. If God just let us off without any kind of punishment of sin, God would be a liar. Because God says very clearly that the wages of sin is death. If we sin, there will be not only physical death, but also a judgment. And if God says this, and God does not do this, God lets people off anyway and saves everybody, then God would be a liar. Deceiving people with empty threats that he has no intention of carrying out. Heaven forbid. I mean that most seriously. Heaven forbid that our God should be called a liar. And the second thing that God would be, if he he overlooks sin, our God would not be holy. In Revelation 21, verse 27, it talks about the city of God. It pictures the, the place where God will be with his people for all eternity. Revelation 21, verse 27. It says this, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Talking about Christian people who put their trust in the Lord to give them a righteousness they could never earn. Nothing impure will ever enter the city of God. Nothing impure cannot stand, can stand in his presence. Sinners cannot dwell with a holy God. If God were to let sinners in without a price being paid for their sin, he would not be holy. He would compromise his holiness, and God can never do that. Only righteous people can come into the kingdom. And the third point is this. If God were to overlook sin and just let people off and save everybody, whether they they had a price paid for their sins or not, God would be a hypocrite. Turn with me, well, you don't have to turn to it. Proverbs 17, verse 5 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible if you want to understand how this works. Proverbs 17, 
Someone called this verse the Acropolis of the Christian faith. It's, it's a, a very, very important and exalted verse. Proverbs 17, verse 5. You, you can e- easily overlook it. It says this. You can memorize this. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And if the Lord were just to acquit guilty people, just to let them off without the law being satisfied, without the demands of his holiness being satisfied, the law would be a hypocrite because he would be doing the very thing that he condemns, which his word says he detests, which is anathema to him, detestable, miscarriage of justice. So God cannot just let people off, otherwise he would be a liar, he would be unholy, unrighteous, and a hypocrite. And God, of course, is none of those things. Imagine that man who committed that terrible crime. People died, property was destroyed, and the police caught up with him and took him to court. And he stood there in the dock, and there was clear evidence that he committed these crimes. And it was unanimously decided that this man was guilty. The jury had decided this. And then the judge was so merciful, he just let this, this man go. And the man went out smirking and went out to commit more crimes. Would we commend that judge? Would we say, what a, what a merciful judge, what a wonderful judge. He just let this murderer go free. But of course, we wouldn't commend his mercy. We would say, no. That's not right. The law is there for a reason. It must be upheld. And this judge is negligent and corrupt for letting this person who deserves to be punished go free. There is a place for mercy in the judicial system, but the law is there to make a clear boundary that people know if you do this, you will be punished. You will suffer. It's exactly the same with God. God is not like a corrupt judge who just lets people off who deserve to be judged. So what what is God to do? Because he loves people and he wants to save people. But people are condemned to judgment and death by his own holy standards, having broken his law. What is God to do? What can be done to save people? Well, we, we read, don't we, in verse 19 again. Actually, in verse 21, let's look at this verse. This is what a glorious verse this is. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What do we learn about our Lord Jesus in this verse? It says here he had had no sin. Only one person ever lived who had no sin. He never did a single thing which displeased God. And God could look at him and say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he meant that. To its, to its fullest extent, God was pleased with his son in every way. Christ was pleasing to him. Never sinned in any way in his thoughts and his deeds. He didn't even have an inclination to sin, unlike us. And this qualified the Lord Jesus as the only person who could offer himself as a sacrifice for sins on behalf of people who believed in him. Verse 21 tells us something rather horrible, rather horrific, but also rather glorious. That this son of God, this divine God-man, man and God together, this man who had no sin, was pure and innocent and holy and righteous, God made him to be sin for us. What does that mean? Does it mean that God made Jesus a sinner on the cross, that Jesus somehow became a sinner? Well, of course not. When he hung on that cross, he was just as righteous and holy as he ever was. When he, died, when he died on that cross, it means that God treated him as a sinner. God regarded him as a sinner. Even though he was not a sinner, even though he was innocent, God looked upon his son and regarded him and treated him as a sinner. And he, on that cross, God paid, put on Jesus the punishment for every sin that every one of God's people over the ages has committed. And God treated him as though he were personally guilty for all those sins. He was a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. The Old Testament is full of references, prophecies about this. 
And he hung on that cross. It looked like any other execution. Romans did it all the time. But something very profound was taking place. God made that man, that, that blameless one, he made him to be sin for us. The word we use is imputed sin. God imputed our sin onto the Lord Jesus. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. You can disagree with it. That's what the word says. God regarded him as a sinner and the chief of sinners. Remember that verse, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I was talking to a a Christian lady yesterday. She said, when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God hadn't really forsaken him and that Jesus was just in his humanity, was just doubting or just, just scared. But that is not true. On that cross, he, he drank the, the, the cup of God's wrath, God's holy, settled judgment against sin. He took it upon himself. He drank it to its dregs. And God the Father turned his face away from his son. And Jesus was utterly cut off and separated from his father, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. You all know the, the famous chapter, Isaiah 53. Read it and meditate on it before communion tonight. He was pierced for our transgressions. That means sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, another word for sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Then the writer talks about the human condition. We all like sheep have gone, ash- gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What was the result of this? This, this, this divine transaction taking place, this wonderful exchange this horrific event, but this, this amazing event. What was taking place? The Lord Jesus was imputed with our sin. But also, something happened to us as well. We might become the righteousness of God. So this is the heart of the Christian message, that God gives Christ our sin, he punishes Christ for our sin. Christ takes it willingly. He's not, he's not a cosmic child abuser, the Lord Jesus Christ was very willing for this to happen. He was, he was um, tormented by the agony of it, and yet he did this because he wanted to please his father, because he loved his people, because this was, this was their plan. They, they hatched before the world was even created to save a people for himself. And on that cross, Jesus took the sin of many. He bore the sin of many so that those who believe in him might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that God regards us, those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus, as righteous in his sight. That guilty status is removed, and God looks upon us as though we were as righteous as Christ. It says in Colossians 1, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Does that mean that Christian people never sin? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that we are righteous always in our behavior? Well, verse 17 tells us we are a new creation, so we should be growing in righteousness, growing in holiness, but we're not perfect. But the righteousness here is not talking about our, our ethical standards. It's talking primarily about this, this status I was talking about. Your judicial status as guilty has been removed. Christ has taken the punishment and you are declared righteous and holy in God's sight. And because of that, you can become a child of God and a friend of God. There's no longer any enmity between you and God. You're reconciled to him. Do you know this morning that your sins have been dealt with, that your sinful status has been taken away, that you've been reconciled to God? I hope you do. Become a child of God, you don't just get let off. Nobody is let off. Somebody has been punished, the Lord Jesus, the only one who could do it. And when you become a believer, you get all the privileges and the joys of a child of God. How gracious is our God? How wise is our God? Who could have come up with a plan like this? That that God's demands should be satisfied. That God should be just. He wouldn't be unjust or unholy or a hypocrite. He could still satisfy his demands and yet let sinners go free and be saved. 
What do you need, need to do to benefit from this, dear friends? Because, you know, you, you listen to that, that message of the angels, peace on earth and, and goodwill to all men. You might be lulled into a false sense of security. Isn't it wonderful? God offers us peace. He offers you peace, but there must be a response. It's not just a general kind of peace to everybody. As I said before, why would Paul say be reconciled to God if there was not a step that needs to be taken? Verse 20, look at it. We implore you, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Dear friends, God has done everything possible, everything necessary for us to be reconciled to him. But there must still be a human response. The ball is in your court, whether you are reconciled to God or not. God has reached out to you. God has instigated this. God has made it possible. He's enabled this. But you have a decision to make. Will you be reconciled to God? Look at some of the words that Paul uses here. So he doesn't just use the word implore. What does the word implore mean? It means to beg someone, to earnestly appeal to someone. Please do this. I implore you. I beg you. Take this medicine which will save your life. What other words does he use? Chapter 6, verse 1, he uses the word urge. I urge you, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. A very similar word, urging someone, strongly encouraging someone to do something. Do this. Please do this. I urge you. Dear friends, the gospel is not, it is an invitation. It's an offer. It's a command. But also, in, in, a, in a very real sense, it is. It is something that we have to respond to. It's something we have to grab with both hands. It's an appeal that's been made to us. Verse 11, we didn't, we didn't read that in, in chapter 5, verse 11. It says this, since we know what it is to fear the law, we try to persuade men. We try to change their minds. We try to convey to them the importance of this. What could be more important for you than to be reconciled to God? I don't care what you're struggling with in your life, what you're facing, what problems you face. I'm not discounting those problems, but those problems pale into insignificance when it comes to this biggest problem of all, being reconciled to God, your guilt before God. There is a note of urgency in the gospel. And Paul brings this out very clearly here, urgency, urging, pleading, imploring, exhorting, making an appeal to people. Accept God's offer, his terms of peace. Don't try and come another way, that won't work. You are are not in the place to tell God how you can be saved or choose for yourself. You come the way that he offers you and say, thank you, God, I'm going to grab this with both hands. Who who do we think we are sometimes that we can somehow bargain with God or try to say, I don't really like your offer, I'll, I'll come my own way, God. How arrogant we are sometimes as people. God didn't have to save any of us. He's been very gracious to us. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Remember that that famous day when the Spirit came and a multitude of people were saved and he he pleaded with them to save yourself from this corrupt generation. He pleaded. There was emotion. He was concerned about their souls. He didn't just offer it as a kind of lifestyle choice. He said, believe this and be saved. Be saved from this corrupt generation. When we preach in the gospel, we're not just inviting people to join a new gym, are we? This matters. It doesn't matter what gym you go to, Virgin Active. What, this matters. This is of supreme importance. Does that come across in the way we present the gospel? Every preacher of the gospel, there are different personalities. Every preacher of the gospel should have a degree of urgency. Whether that comes across as kind of, you know, speaking fervently to people, whether it's a more gentle approach, there should be that urgency. This matters. It matters greatly. Now, I must say here that we, we must be aware that we cannot change the hearts of people. We can plead with people on our knees all day long. Unless God changes the heart of a person, opens them up to receive the gospel. There will be no change. People will go away absolutely hardened. A non-believer could be sitting here. I could be screaming in their face, be saved. They would not listen. It would would seem as nonsense to them unless the Lord were to do a work in their heart. That's what we pray for. But we are called to make an appeal to people. There are Christians who don't believe we should make an appeal. We just, just 
Tell people about the Lord and let them make their own decision. But we are called to appeal to people. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He says this, In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. The angels on that night, they inaugurated this period. They announced peace on earth and goodwill towards men on whom God's favour rests. Dear friends, this is the time of salvation. This is the day of salvation. This is the time of favour. This is the time when God will listen to people that call to him. This is what the the angels announced, the the inauguration of this era, when when God would send his saviour, break into this world, to die for our sins, and then for the gospel to be proclaimed in his name. Reconciliation and peace with God. It's not a universal peace for everyone, it's a peace for those who believe. An offer of peace. And during this time of salvation, during this period, it's vitally important that every person prays the only prayer that I believe that God can hear a sinner pray, which is this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You might, people try to pray to God who are not even believers, but the only prayer that God will hear, I believe, is this, that, you know, respond to is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy. Please forgive me. I believe that your son died for me to give me the gift of righteousness that I could never earn. I've broken your laws. And I'm guilty. I admit that. I confess that. Please save me. Remember the story of the prodigal son. Very famous and beautiful story. That young man walked away from home, as so many young men do, to go and see the world. Squandered his wealth. His father's wealth. Ended up in a pigsty. One day he got up. He said, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go home and be a servant. Offer myself as a servant, as a slave to my father. And he got up and he made the journey and he had no idea how his father would receive him. Did he? And he got there and of course we know the story. The father comes out and he runs and welcomes his son and he hugs him. And he kills the fatted calf and he puts a ring on his finger and there's a great celebration, and great rejoicing and a beautiful reconciliation. And dear friends, you, you don't have to fear that if you come to God that somehow God might reject you. If you come in the way that he tells you through Jesus Christ... You can have absolute certainty that God will hear your prayer and welcome you richly and there'll be great rejoicing and a very moving and beautiful reconciliation between you and your creator that you've shunned for so long. If you knew the horror of judgment, if you knew how terrible it is to face God as an angry judge, and he is loving and he's merciful, but he's also he's not to be, to be mocked, if you knew that horror, you would crawl across this country all the way to Cornwall or John O'Groats on broken glass on your hands and knees to avoid that predicament. You would pay any money you had. You would give anything to avoid that on that day when you stand before God. And our God is a consuming fire and you see him burning in his holiness. And you realise that you've shunned him and disobeyed him, you haven't accepted his terms of peace, what a horrible thing that will be. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but there are reasons to be concerned about this. You would do anything to be right with God. Any sacrifice that could be made, you would make. No price would be too high. And yet the good news is, is that this is offered to you free. Freely offered to you by grace for those who believe. Just believe Put your trust in the Lord Jesus, believe, and receive the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins. God has done everything. You don't need to do anything except to repent, turn from your sin, and turn to God and believe in the Lord Jesus. Dear friends, now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off any longer. If you haven't, if you are. The word word of God says that God is very patient. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. He gives time. That's, that's why we have so much suffering in the world. Because people say, why doesn't God deal with this suffering? Dear friends, a day is coming where God will put all things right and all things shall be well. There will be a day of reckoning. Wickedness will be dealt with. But God allows us to continue. He restrains it by his common grace. 
And the day will come when God says, enough, enough is enough. The door of salvation will shut for good. This is that period we live in now, that, that opportunity, the day of salvation to repent. God is patient. Don't confuse God's patience with his weakness. He's, oh, God, God's not doing anything. God will do something. The Lord Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And if you refuse this offer of reconciliation, one, one of two things will happen to you. One is that you will die at some point, which is the common fate of all people. Yeah, one of uh, our friends in Ukraine, some, some man in her church, he was a Christian, he was a believer. He died. How was he? He wasn't a Christian. 32-year-old man had a heart attack and dropped down dead in Ukraine. wasn't a believer. Don't presume that you are going to live to a ripe old age. I hope and pray that you do, but our times are in the Lord's hands. You cannot afford to put this off. It's utterly foolish. You're playing with fire. And if you die in your sin, there will be no second chance. The Bible just gives no shred of hope for a second chance after death. Well, the second thing that could happen is the Lord Jesus will come before you die. And likewise, there will be no second chance. You cannot make peace with him after he comes back. Now is the day of salvation. The Bible says very clearly that on that day, if we're separated from God now and alienated from him now, on that day of judgment, the Lord will give us what we wanted, what we've chosen, and he'll separate us from himself for all eternity. And there will be no way back, no second chance, and no hope. Do you see how vitally important this is? To get right with God, to be reconciled to him. Jesus gave the following teaching. In Matthew 5, he says this, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. The judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. The Lord is talking about human relationships, reconciling ourselves to people, but there's a spiritual principle here as well. If you have a quarrel with God, God certainly has a quarrel with you. Be reconciled to him before you're punished, and you won't get out until you've paid the last penny, and you'll never get out of there because you'll never pay that last penny. Let me say this as well. The devil will do anything possible. That God has an enemy, the devil. The devil will do anything to distract you from this decision. But bombard you with all kinds of stuff, even quite good stuff. Christmas, career, relationships, grandchildren, holidays, illnesses. All these things are important. But the devil can use them to distract you put you off making this decision and one day the door may close let me just finish on this theme I'm going to finish in a minute I want to bring a few more points I hope you can hold on but in Isaiah chapter 1 it says this or God says this to his, his wayward and rebellious people why should you be beaten anymore why do you persist in rebellion so this 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 I want you to, to learn this as well about God. God is not some impersonal, clinical being. God is, is deeply grieved by sin. It says that at the time of Noah, his heart was grieved by sin. He's not just, you know, it's not just a kind of clinical, judicial thing. He really does. He's pleading with his people in these verses. So he, he appeals to them. Why should you be beaten anymore? You're suffering because of your sin. The judgments I, I, I promise to you have come upon you because of your disobedience. Why should you persist in this anymore? I look around at this city, this needy, needy city. I look around at this nation and this world. I see people lurching from one disaster to another because they disobey God's word. They break his commands. They will not be reconciled to him. And I think God would say to them, why should you be beaten anymore? You know, relationships are broken and people are loggerheads with each other. Why should you persist anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? You suffer for it, but you refuse to come to me to have life. Dear friends, as I said earlier, we have the only hope for this world. We little band here, we happy few, band of brothers and sisters. We have the hope that the people need. 
I want to say something very quickly about the, the ministry of reconciliation. Um, verse 18. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. First of all, God reconciles us to himself. Look at that. God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the pattern. Those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ are then given the commission, the task of ministering that that reconciliation to other people. In verse 20, Paul talks about Christians being Christ's ambassadors. What's an ambassador? Somebody who represents a government or a king speaks on their behalf. Obviously, this applies particularly to the apostles. We don't have apostles anymore, but the the first apostles and evangelists and ministers, but I believe it applies to every single Christian. And this sums up the message of this church, every church, every gospel church. Be reconciled to God. This is the appeal we make to people. What does this message involve? Um, On the screen, please. First of all, the things I mentioned today, the problem of sin and how it separates us from God. Secondly, the good news that Christ has died is a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that takes away sin as our substitute, that God might not count our sins against us. And then a very important element, an an urgent appeal to men and women to believe and put their trust in Christ for salvation. You need to have that as well as part of it, the the appeal to people to, to urge them to believe. This is the, the heart of our message, isn't it, as Christians? If you go to a church where this is not spoken of clearly, that church has a problem because this is fundamental. As Christ's fellow workers and ambassadors, we do not have the right to preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We do not preach our own message. We do not distort the message or change the message. We have a duty to preach it faithfully, as faithfully as we can with God's help. As I said earlier, if you purport to be an ambassador for the Lord Jesus, you need to know what you believe. You need to be able to speak it to other people in some measure. And if you you purport to be a a Christian professional, a minister of the gospel, that's why you need to pray for your ministers, pray for for preachers, that we would not distort this message. Because we're like a doctor deceiving people about the, the nature of their illness. We don't tell people the truth about their condition and the remedy as well and urge them to take it. You might be a non-Christian here today and you might be offended by those annoying people, those annoying Christians who keep trying to convert me, uh, make me religious, that annoying man in the shopping centre giving out tracts. Let me say this to you. We do this. We do this out of compassion and obedience to God. And if, if you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being presented to you by some Christian, don't blame them because they're only doing what God has called them to do. And... If you hear that message, it's not just a Christian concoction. It says here, God is making his appeal through us. If you hear the gospel preached clearly, maybe even this morning, I don't know how clearly I've preached it, but if you've heard the gospel this morning, this is not just me speaking, Ben, this is God's word speaking to you. God making his appeal through me to you. How callous would we be, how wicked would we be if we had this truth and kept it to ourselves and didn't tell people? I meet Christians sometimes, not in this church, I, I speak to them, they seem to be totally unconcerned about the lost. No sense that we're, we're called to try to witness to people and win people. There's no urgency. We haven't got this sense of appealing to people. There's no praying for opportunities. And I think, do you really understand the gospel? If you don't have a concern for the lost, do you understand how important this is? People are so concerned about all sorts of frivolous things. This is important, isn't it? Now, I, I know sometimes our hearts are cold, and my heart is cold as well for the lost. We're motivated by the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? It says that in chapter 5, verse 11. Since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade men. And by compassion, Christ's love compels us. That's why we preach the gospel. We try to, to speak to people about the Saviour. And also, another important reason, because of love and admiration for Christ, that he might be acknowledged and worshipped as Lord. That should be a concern for us. It's a travesty that more people in the city do not worship the Lord Jesus. And I mean to change that by God's grace. This church should be a, a rescue shop from hell, a place where the good news goes out to all corners of the city 
Not everybody will believe it. Many will reject it. Let me say this just to finish as well. You don't get a day off being a Christian. It's not like, you know, like, sounds obvious, doesn't it? But you're not on duty from, you know, Monday to Friday, 9 o'clock to 5 o'clock, and on Sundays from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And then the rest of the time you just go back to your other way of life. When I was a young Christian, I was full of zeal. I didn't have much wisdom. I was a bit impetuous and foolish, and I got myself into some scrapes, and I was pretty a bit too full-on at times. But I, I, would, I would go down to the supermarket to get my weekly shopping um, as a student, and I would go there with a little fish badge on my, on my thing. And it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I wanted somebody to ask me about that fish so I could talk about the Lord Jesus. I went to the, the student summer prom at my college, and I stood there in my ill-fitting suit, with a pint in my hand, and I, I was looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, and I was talking to all sorts of people, and some of them didn't want to know, but I had that zeal. Every time I go out the door, it's an opportunity to witness for the Lord. I went to a wedding. I thought, I'm going to go to this wedding. I'm going to pray. Lord, give me an opportunity to speak of you at this wedding, to be an ambassador for you. To be. And let me say this as well. Being an ambassador for Christ is not just speaking his words. You have to live in a way which, which is worthy of the gospel. Because if you're not, it's just a terribly unattractive thing, hypocritical. So when you go to that wedding, when you go to that office Christmas party, don't just see it as a kind of knees up. Go there with Christ to represent him, to be his ambassador, to speak to the lost about reconciliation. And if there are Christians there, to encourage them to walk in the grace of God. That's why I just love Chris and his zeal for the gospel and other people as well. Going to places, talk to the guy in the burger van about Jesus. Yes, we don't need to be intense, we don't need to be annoying, but we do need to speak and look for opportunities and pray. We're always on duty as Christians. Of course, there's a wrong way of doing that as well. We can be foolish and just annoy people, but I'm talking about in a gracious, loving way. Real people, but very different because we're reconciled to God. Just to finish, last paragraph. Praise God sending his son to be our saviour. I hope you can praise him this morning. I hope your heart's moved by this. You're not just thinking about getting out of here as quickly as possible. I pray you're thinking about this, that the Lord Jesus is our saviour. Wonderful saviour who reconciles sinners to God. And this is the good news. This is the day of God's favour. This is the day of salvation. This is the time when the Lord offers peace to all who believe. The prophets of old foretold it. The angels declared it on that night. And we have been sent into this world to proclaim it. We, we praise God for the wisdom of his plan the greatness of our saviour, the depth of his love towards sinners. I think we can, we can all end on this high note. We can, we can declare with the angels, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. If you want to speak to me about anything I've said today, I'm happy to speak to you, so, so my fellow elders and people in this church. But be reconciled to God if you haven't been. If you have been, glory to God. Be his ambassador. Make his appeal for him. Amen.